Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give five, ten, or twenty dollars a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Hard Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full, unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Harder Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview, I'm joined by Patrick Hermanson, a researcher at Hope Not Hate and one of the authors of the book, The International Alt-Right, Fascism for the 21st Century, which is available to purchase now. Patrick Hermanson, thank you for joining me. Thanks for thanks for having me on. For those that haven't had a chance to pick up a copy of the book yet, could you give us a summary of what it's about and why you and your colleagues at Hope Not Hate decided to write about it, particularly now given the climate that we're in? So the alt-right, which is a section of the kind of broader far-right, um, has been discussed a lot in, in media and uh, in, in some other books. Uh, particularly after uh, Trump's election in in 2016. Um, The thing we found was that um, most of those books were overly American-centric. They discuss it as uh, an entirely American movement. And and it's quite understandable. and, and also European kind of reporting on it also found it to be uh, or, or discussed it as if it was an American phenomenon. Um, and, and, and it's partially true. Um, but we see it as an international movement. Um, we draw parallels to previous European far-right groups and, and ideas. And we also discuss activism uh, in, in Europe for, for the alt-right um, Uh, right now. The alt-right has managed to make its way all the way to the political mainstream. How did it make such a progression? How does it go from spreading from fringe to fringe on social media to being a mainstream political concept? I think this kind of speaks to to why we should take it and, and uh, take it quite seriously and why it's worthy of, of, of writing about and analysing in depth. And this, of course, has multiple different explanations. Um, and and kind of it, it's easy to blame it on, on, on mainstream media for propping it up. Uh, and it's and of course kind of the circumstances around Trump's election that uh, Trump and the Republican, other Republican um, politicians in different ways kind of um, made hints uh, and so on to to the alt-right, used vocabulary and imagery that people associated with the alt-right. But it's very much also about the tactic the alt-right uses. And, and this is really the definitional part of, of why we feed, see it as a separate movement. Um, the alt-right has uh, made use of, of, of a lot of already existing far-right ideas. They are not entirely unique. Um, they take a little bit from different segments of it um, and create something um, relatively new. Um, but more than that, they also take uh, a technique, uh, a way of organizing, which is, like you said, um, almost entirely based on online organizing. 
uh, and it's using kind of trolling and antagonistic online culture. So um, kind of culture that's emerged on, on, on some forums and image boards and games online uh, where people um, uh, make fun, harass, um, and make makes jokes on 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 behalf of other people, and this is often what we call trolling nowadays. But that wasn't, you know, an entirely um, known concept a few years ago to the mainstream public. Although it was definitely uh, is definitely an old idea, and through trolling, trolling, and, and to uh, which is um, and. Sorry, I lost my thing. I thought. Um, so trolling and kind of this antagonistic online culture is what you do is uh, what it got from there is is memes, um, these this way of attacking people online, of making jokes, of of hiding its message in in layers of irony, um, and 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 that created really a kind of a cloud of confusion and. Uh, around what the alt right wanted, what it, uh, what it, uh, what size it had, how many people actually were there, um, which in turn uh, has led to media uh, and some politicians and so on being maybe overly scared of it, um, but also uh, giving it coverage um, that it didn't really deserve but that helped advance its interests. As you touched on there on social media, one of the defences of the actions of these individuals is that it's just a joke, it's just trolling. And obviously that's not the case in, in a lot of these examples. When does it cross that line from jokes in poor taste to malicious content that radicalises because often there can be a thin line between the two. Obviously, we can cite extreme examples, but there can be a thin line between those two moments. So where is that crossover that we need to look out for? <laughs> That's, of course, kind of the, the, this, what this confusion means. Like, I can't tell you exactly where that line goes. Um, the pictures and the messages um, and the texts always change. And these layers of irony, um, like you talk about, um, they're always adapted to the current context, um, whether that be the news or, or the forum they're spread on. Um, so it's impossible to say this is okay and this is not okay. Um, but it's just that fact, uh, it's just this kind of ambiguity and the difficulty of drawing the line and, and asserting is it serious or is it a joke? That's what the alt-right kind of online activist has exploited. Um, so some of it is extreme um, and obviously, you know, as sympathetic of fascism and Nazism, it's jokes about the Holocaust, it's, uh, uh, it's extreme forms of misogyny, uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, uh, and so on. Um, others are more complex. And how much irony and, and how thick that layer of irony is on top of it is also different in different moments. And um, 
the result is that both the viewer but also the sender and i think that's quite important um can hide behind the fact that it's a joke um but the meanings of it are often relatively clear or at least in in kind of aggregated become clear when you consume hundreds of these memes and, and posts of different sorts um the message starts to become quite clear even if it is um even if you can't say it's a, a very extreme so um it's really the aggregate uh of of of, of the aggregate effect of because you have to see like how many of these memes are posted and and how long time these activists spend um on these forum uh forums um and getting these kind of uh, fed to them um so it's really hard to say where does the line go but um the effect of it is pretty clear and and definitely um uh, very real the other point you touched on a moment ago was the impact that the media had in giving oxygen to this by their coverage of, of what was going on. Do you think that in this desperation to cover the rise of the alt-right, the media somewhat naively helped to further its spread by giving it a platform, giving the opportunity for members of the alt-right to talk about their beliefs and sharing it to others who wouldn't have come across this organization on the fringes of social media, but managed to see it on the mainstream news that, that they can shoot. Yeah, hundred percent. I think you're completely right. And, and in several ways, um, in one way it, it touches on kind of, um, what I just talked about confusion and, and layers of irony on, on top of their message. Um, that meant that that media was also quite, uh, at least in the start, uh, had difficulty kind of uh, dealing with that issue. Is it serious or is it not? We can probably post or write about this because they're just a bunch of kids. Um, they're online Nazis. What can they do? Um, it helped to make them uh, feel more acceptable than their ideas actually were, or at least less dangerous. Um, and that's kind of the kind of talks or kind of proves the efficacy of 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 um, their way of spreading their message online. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, but more than that, um, and also I guess it's also important to add that um, this led to kind of headlines that were were things like um, you know hipster hipster Nazis, hipster far right, like they, they, they were presented in a way that um, previous far right groups wouldn't have been. And they themselves looked different, especially from the British far right, who, who's, who's for a long time been quite old. Um, but then it brings it back to kind of this uh, issue of trolling. When far right, and oh, sorry, alt right activists appeared on media and were interviewed, um, they made short made sure it was useful for them um and part of trolling is to of course make fun of of your um target it's to um exploit kind of um outbursts of, of real emotion of, of of people who have strong emotions political conviction and so on you 
uh, you laugh towards those kind of people. And that's essentially what, what media became. So um, when they invent symbols, they invent things, um, just small campaigns started running on, on 4chan and 8chan where, um, you know, new finger symbols, they said, meant, uh, you know, white power. And, and all of a sudden, um, when mainstream media make something of that then, um, and people who take those things too seriously right away, um, they will appear alarmist and um, as they're, they're just taking it out of context and, and um, they seem, uh, yeah, they seem, they seem extremely alarmist and, and silly. Um, and that, of course, also played into their hand. Um, that the left was actually, uh, you know, a bit disconnected from things and, and this is actually how people speak and so on. And then over time, of course, I would argue that many of these symbols that they did make up back then uh, have gotten real meaning and they do have real meaning um, now, um, but not but not the morning after they were created uh, on a far right forum. Is there a way that we and the media can cover and talk about groups like this or should be? covering and talking about groups like this in a critical manner that challenges the views that they're doing while at the same time not falling into these traps of giving further coverage, giving further oxygen to them, because obviously you can't ignore this ideology entirely because it essentially fuels part of their belief, which is they're shunned by mainstream politics and that they're this opposition to what exists in the political spectrum and, and these sort of individuals in the mainstream media as they mm-hmm. who don't acknowledge them so how do we cover what's happening while also making sure that we're not part of the furthering of the spread of that viewpoint yeah it's a good question and it's a hard one of course um and it, I, I should just say i, I don't want to overly bash on on kind of mainstream media outlets too much myself i mean there is good reporting happening um but there's also bad reporting and and it is tricky and it's really from case to case um it's about giving them oxy- oxygen um like you say um and i think that what you can do is you can explain without going, um, um, well, with, with, without going kind of over the top and becoming so alarmist that you kind of feed them back, uh, feed kind of their sense that they are dangerous because they want to be sometimes. Um, but then just you have to kind of start with the understanding that um, far-right propaganda um uh, will benefit from um, kind of standard journalistic methods of talking to both sides and understanding what lays behind and so on. Um, and therefore, um, fight activists will uh, often take interviews when they think it will benefit them um, because it will uh, reach a bigger audience and so on. So. A simple thing is to um, avoid making interviews, talking to people who have studied these groups um, 
try to keep the alarmism to um, a minimum and try to get some historical perspective as well. Is it really that new? Is it, you know, uh, the return of, of, of the German Nazi party this time as well? Um, I think it's it's about common sense at the end of the day, but for a journalist, you have to just kind of struggle against um, your urge to make something uh, alarmist and click click worthy. Unfortunately, we'll be back with more right after this break. The Hard to Report podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest e-counselling platform, making professional counselling accessible, affordable and convenient so anyone who needs help can get it anytime, anywhere. What interferes with your happiness? Give a personal experience. Well, these days with the news cycle we have, it'd probably be easier to list what doesn't interfere with my happiness. BetterHelp has counsellors who specialise in a number of different areas, including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief and self-esteem. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. I signed up to BetterHelp and within 24 hours, I'd been matched with a counsellor and was able to start talking to them and arrange an appointment. It's more affordable than traditional counselling and financial aid is available. So many people are now using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. So as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash thehardyreport. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash The Hardy Report. The book has a heavy focus on research and unlike some other books on the alt-right, it looks really at the detail of how the alt-right came to be what it is today rather than focusing on one element of it 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 looks at the alt-right as a whole you personally spent a year undercover with individuals who would be called the alt-right what was that like as an openly gay man who does hold all the views that these individuals deeply oppose you're in your mid-20s you're surrounded by these individuals what was that experience like being around these people yeah um of course in in kind of a simple way it was um stressful and sometimes scary um but also exciting the thing is i got to use my um whiteness because i am a white guy at the end of the day and um i got to use that in a positive way um it got to be taken in and to use their kind of blind trust in people that look like them uh, because that's what it is at the end of the day um against them um to stop a few groups to uh, make it harder for them to organize and and that feels 
very good in retrospect, but of course doing it. Um, yeah, it, it ranged from extremely boring days because like you say, I was there for a year. I, I spent a, a hundreds, so much time, hundreds of hours, thousands of hours with these people. Um, most meetings were boring. Um, most meetings are social events. You talk to people. Um, and of course, that's useful in, in terms of letting, getting to know them uh, and to understand where people come from. It's, it's, it's incredibly useful in that sense. Um, and it ranged to extremely frightening, um, extreme situations, especially in the US where, you know, I was with armed groups, um, with uh, very uh, violent groups um, and at kind of these big events like Charlottesville, um, which got very violent. At the end of the day, I, I, I the only thing I can say is also that I, I took away things from that, that that would have been very hard to learn from books and, and other experiences. And I think that really guides my research today. And uh, I make use of, of some of those insights every week. Well, I was going to ask that as my next question, which is what did you learn from your time amongst them about their tactics, the way they draw people in, become mainstream, radicalize others, the approach that they take? What did you take away from that experience that you can now use in your research to combat the sort of ideology that they were pushing? Um, I think like the one of the most like useful things is just understanding what brings someone from online activism to offline activism, for example. What 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 does it mean to take the step from having sat online and and spent you know every evening on racist forums, but never actually met another fascist in real life to 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 take a step out of that um, you know basement to uh, go to a far right meeting um, and that's something I learned by by talking to loads of people of course and there are lots of different answers to that question but I also ended up doing vetting for a far right group in London um, during a time where they saw uh, a quite a big rise in uh, uh, new members, which is um, right after the election of Donald Trump. Uh, and of course, sitting down and speaking to someone who wants to join a far-right group for the first time is incredibly fascinating. Um, but it, it gives you a lot of explanations because that's what you do. That's really the only place during an infiltration where you could really just, you know, through question after question after question after question to someone, uh, because that's your role as as doing the background check. Um, otherwise, you can't really do that because it's suspicious. Um, but sitting there and and you know what people say then is of course that they are um, dedicated uh, fascists that they have been nationalists or patriots or or whatever since they were children. Um, because you always want to stress your kind of. The, the genu uh, how genuine your your far right belief in, of course, as you if you come as a new member, um, but then they sit there in front of you and they are you know thirty five or forty and you wonder, but why? What happened now? Uh, why haven't you done it before? And 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 the answer to those questions um, often revolve around 
you know, a feeling that they are winning, a feeling that the movement is getting bigger and stronger and that actually lots of people agree with these views. Uh, and that's also why I'm very worried, worried about what's happening now. That's why um, Donald Trump has been an incredibly negative influence, even in, you know, the most extreme ends of the far right in Europe. What is it that truly motivates these individuals? Because understanding their motivations is key to understanding how to combat them. What is it that truly motivates these individuals? Is it a feeling they've been wronged somehow? Is it a true belief in the words they're saying and the views they're pushing? What is it that makes them support this approach to such an extent? Oh, complicated. Um, lots of different things and lots of combinations of things. Um, it's definitely a feeling of, of of loss of something that could have been yours. So a feeling that um, the future was mine as a, as a white man, but now because of you know immigration or feminism or gay rights, it's been taken away from me. Uh, that's definitely one um, quite simple one um that that might explain some but not all um but also i think it's important to talk about kind of um the social context of these groups what they give give to members um those are people who join aren't you know they aren't extremely uh they don't have extremely many friends they might have bad relationships with the family um these groups are, are very good at giving you a sense that you are important um, they give you a social context, but they also make it make you feel as as an elite, as part of an elite, as as a small part of society that has understand how things really are. You know, these are very conspiratorial as well. Um, so being part of these groups means that you have understood that then supposedly Jews control everything. Um, and so on, and having understood that is to have kind of seen behind the curtain um, makes you feel uh, smarter and uh, more enlightened than the rest of society. That's a very powerful feeling. You've talked about how during your time amongst the alt-right, you, quote, became desensitized and started to lose perspective of how absurd their ideology was. You mentioned earlier about how much time you spent among them, hundreds of hours with these individuals. Do you fear that's occurring on a wider scale as hateful ideas go unchallenged? They become normalised. We see these groups rising up around the world, politicians who support this approach rising to prominence in different countries. Do you fear that just as you started to become desensitised to those views, by being among these individuals, the public at large might, if they keep being exposed to them, as if it's just, uh, you know, mainstream political positions. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I got desensitized, or, um, but not necessarily. That doesn't mean I, I lost kind of perspective of ho how extreme the ideas were. Um, but it was definitely kind of an insight that, you know, uh, you are extremely angry in the beginning uh, when you hear what they say, but but once you've heard it for the hundredth time, you don't react as strongly anymore. Uh, even though you know that it's wrong and you haven't changed your your outlook or anything, but you it, it becomes normal. It becomes more and more normal. Um, and I am afraid that 
something similar is happening to the rest of the world. Um, I mean, one of the biggest threats we have from the far right is actually um, existing uh, conservative parties who start to take on uh, far right ideas and morph into uh, radical right parties. Um, because these ideas become normal, uh, because they believe their voters want that, um, because we have over time uh, made more stringent um, immigration laws and, and so on. And that's happening uh, in the UK and it's, it's you know, clearly happening in the US as well. What can we as individuals be doing to combat and prevent the further rise of the alt-right? I think the book, in terms of, uh, of kind of an individual, the book is very much written to, to journalists and, and academics, but, but individuals, I think, will have um, a lot of interest in, in its way of organising. Um, I think um, trying to see what's happening around you, to, to recognise far-right symbols that, you know, weren't, uh, obvious to you before um, that's used by you know a cousin of yours or a grandchild or uh, whatever can be or a colleague um, just recognizing and understanding where where this comes from um, I think that's that's the first step in in taking action towards it in questioning it and and in asking does this person know where it comes from um, doesn't know what it means, uh, and if it doesn't, why do you send it? Um, I think that's that's something quite small, but something that requires knowledge, but um, can it's not very hard to do um, in in practice, and and would be really useful uh, because it kind of relies on these messages being spread um, with as little friction as possible. Finally, what do you hope people will take away from this book and where can people get a copy of it? I hope people, except for what I just said, I think one thing is, is really to put the alt-right, the far-right today in a historical context to understand that um, the far-right will always try to remodel itself uh, in a way that fits the current context. Um, in order to gain as much influence as possible. And in order to, to understand and recognize that, uh, you need to understand a bit of context, you need to understand a bit of history. Um, because really the important thing um, is to understand what is far-right ideas, what is, um, what is the danger here? So we don't just look past it and think, oh, this is just another political idea that's a bit new and weird. Um, it's actually a real danger. Um, and I think to see what's happening um, around you, um, a book like this is, is the perfect start. Patrick Hermanson, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. That was Patrick Hermanson, a researcher at Hope Not Hate, and one of the authors of the book, The International Alt-Right, Fascism for the 21st Century which is available to purchase now. You can find out more about him and his work on Twitter at Patrick underscore H. 
and hope not hate at hope not hate or at hope not hate.org.uk. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Until next time, goodbye.